on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. I just really thought, well, could I get the data myself about Airbnb in my own neighborhood? And so I wrote some code, and this was just to get the data for my own neighborhood. It was at that point that I became a housing activist. And so there was obvious that there were issues with Airbnb in my neighborhood. There was more than a thousand Airbnb listings just in this small community. The majority were entire homes. And so I knew that there was an opportunity to tell a story about how Airbnb was really being used in that neighborhood. And I started to think about it a bit deeper. Well, if I can collect the data for one neighborhood, I can probably collect the data for the entire city. Welcome to the End of Tourism podcast, season three, Invocations. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories of modern travel, of wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. They are deep dialogues for the dilemmas of our hypermobile times. Full disclosure, dear listeners, the pod relies on a gift economy model in which your donations ensure that this work continues. Without our current Patreon patrons, I simply wouldn't be able to offer this to you. So thank you to each of you who offer your gifts to this project. There are some simple ways to support the pod. You can do so through the End of Tourism's Patreon account at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. Any amount really goes a long way. Now, I've also just launched my new Substack page or newsletter in which you'll receive monthly updates and be able to read all of my archived and new writing on the themes of food, psychedelics, exile, hospitality, and identity, always taking to task the subliminal, mythic, and psychic undercurrents of the culture. Substack will also soon host all of these podcast episodes, so you can sign up for free or on a subscription-level basis at chrischristu.substack.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U dot substack.com. Now, stumbling across the pod is often made possible by those ratings-based algorithms we love so much. Typically, they're yoked to listener reviews. So please take a moment, it shouldn't take longer than that, to rate or review the pod on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it be Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. It's really, really deeply appreciated and goes a long way. Finally, if there are other creative ways you'd like to assist or participate, whether through post-production, marketing, diffusion, or any other manner, then please feel free to get in touch. On this episode, my guest is Murray Cox a multidisciplinary Australian-American artist and housing activist based in Newburgh, New York, who uses visual, audio, spatial, and data storytelling to explore themes of economic and racial equity and to fight for housing justice and the right to our cities. He is also the data activist founder of Inside Airbnb, a mission-driven project which provides free data on Airbnb's impact on residential communities, and advocates for regulations that protect our neighborhoods. Welcome, Murray, to the End of Tourism podcast. It's great to see you today and have you speak with us. Thanks, Chris. It's nice to be here. So I'd love to ask you 
to start a little about your story, Marie. How did you become a housing activist? Well, I would say the seeds to becoming a housing activist were some work I was doing before I started this project inside Airbnb. But at the time, it was back in 2014, so mm. it's about um, nine years ago. I was living in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, New York City. And I was involved with an organization that was teaching youth STEM and STEAM, so science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, to young people in the community, but using a social justice project to engage the activity to work on something that was important for the community. The organization was Divas for Social Justice, and uh, we had decided to do a summer camp in nearby Weeksville, which is right next to Bedford-Stuyvesant. And so we were teaching youth all types of things, media, 3D printing. But my job was to teach the youth about maps and statistics, to talk about gentrification using maps and statistics, the history of segregation in those neighborhoods, racial segregation, the rising cost of housing, homelessness, and then also some of the demographic changes in the neighborhood. And so these were youth between six and 16. And so that, that project that was in the summer of 2014. And this was one of the first projects where I'd started to use data and maps, although I have a technology background, but I also have an activist and an, an artist background. But I saw the power of maps we did an exhibition at the end and i saw people interacting with the exhibition we had some of the maps and some of the visualizations with the data along with a narrative that the youth had created for each of those and so i saw the power of maps and statistics in a public context so it was at that point in time when i came across a few journalists starting to talk about airbnb and so this was in 2014, Airbnb was around 2007, 2008. I'd never used Airbnb before, but I had the impression that it was people renting out space in their home. People used to call it home sharing or the sharing economy. And when I had done some travel before, coincidentally back in 2007, I'd experiment with some of the home sharing apps where you could where you could say, I'm traveling to this city. Does anyone have a couch? So with the couch surfing apps. Mm. And I think in exchange, you're meant to open up your home to travelers, but this was not for money. So I, I had that type of impression. And then so I, I seen the journalists talking about Airbnb using data and some maps. At the time, it was an article, I think, about Airbnb in San Francisco. And then some of the issues that I had with the story were that the journalists didn't publish any data. They published a few maps, but they were relatively static maps. And so it was really just about what the journalists had decided to tell us about the data. And so I just really thought, well, could I get the data myself about Airbnb in my own neighborhood. And so I wrote some code and this was just to get the data for my own neighborhood, Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn, New York. I 
put the data into a spreadsheet and I started showing it to some other activists that I knew in the community. And so it was at that point that I became a housing activist. And so there was obvious that there were issues with Airbnb in my neighborhood. There was more than a thousand Airbnb listings just in this small community. The majority of those Airbnb listings were entire homes. People had multiple entire homes. And so I knew that there was an opportunity to tell a story about how Airbnb was really being used in that neighborhood. And I started to think about it a bit deeper. Well, if I can collect the data for one neighborhood, I can probably collect the data for the entire city. And after I understood the data myself, how could I lead someone through the different data that was important, allow them to explore the data in their own neighborhood, explore the data that was important. And so in February 2015, I released Inside Airbnb New York City, which allowed the public to download the data, but also look at maps of the data, drill into their own neighborhood. And at that time, we were looking at the proportion of entire homes versus private rooms versus shared rooms. And then also looking at some data from the reviews and then also how many listings each host had. So it was a subset of some of the data. Wow, what a story. I wanted to ask because so much of the politics in regards to the housing crisis and housing activism is fairly new to me. That I remember in my teens and 20s hearing about the housing crisis or crises in Canada, which of course, you know, to a lot of people is simply ongoing, that it's not, not something that just arose with Airbnb and that in the past there was this kind of understanding, however superficial, that the housing crisis or the housing issues in North America had to do with affordable housing, ensuring that low-income parts of the population have access to housing, have affordable housing, and that it revolves around issues of homelessness. So I'm curious, from your perspective, at what point does things like short-term rentals, Airbnb, and the kind of work you're doing start to really become a major factor in the quote-unquote housing crisis? Well, you mentioned a few different things there. At the worst, Airbnb takes housing out of the residential market. And so if you think about the residential market, some of the, the potential impacts have mainly been around gentrification, how much is being built, the cost of housing. And so it's almost like a standalone, uh, it's a standalone market, but there are lots of negatives within that market. There's property speculation. There are people sitting on properties just for capital appreciation. There are landlords that evict tenants. Now, if you take that, that market, which already has its own challenges, and then you start to intersect it with the tourism market, and you allow people to either buy, rent, um, or convert residential housing into tourist accommodation, then that's another negative impact on housing. And I would say this, that the majority of Airbnb hosts are using accommodation which is not the cheapest form of housing. 
because usually tourists want to, unless you're a budget tourist or where you might be staying, the alternatives might be hostels or a very cheap motel. Most Airbnbs, I would argue, the tourists that are willing to spend a little bit more money and so would be competitive to hotels. But at the same time, in places like New York City, the housing is very mixed up there. Even in multi-million dollar neighborhoods, there's affordable housing. And so it really depends on the market. And there's also the indirect impact. So let's say, for example, for argument's sake, that there are some luxury residential housing that are being converted into Airbnbs. There is a flow-on effect. So someone that might otherwise be renting that out and living in a housing which is more expensive, and so a lower-income resident might not be able to rent it out. There's a flow-on effect that's that person that cannot can no longer rent and live in the housing unit would have to go and find somewhere else to rent or go to another neighborhood. So there's both direct and indirect impacts from the conversion of residential properties via platforms like Airbnb. I don't think that Airbnb's ever the only cause of these housing issues, but it's sometimes a significant or a major cause of these issues. And then also, if you think about this from a housing policy point of view, it's something that we can control, whereas it might be harder to control the natural movement or the unnatural markets of prices going up and property speculation. That's a lot harder to regulate, but it's a lot easier, and it has been done multiple times in terms of enforcing zoning, land use, and building use. The way that we think about residential properties for residential use, it's a very well-known concept. And so it's definitely something that we could consider in our different communities as a very easy thing to control. If there is housing that's being taken off the market via tourism, that there's something that we could regulate. So just in summary, I think that the impacts of platforms like short-term rentals on affordable housing, oftentimes it's direct, but other times it's indirect. And there's economists have also proven that the cost of housing for everyone rises. So there's the displacement, and then there's also the rising cost of housing. And then also, I think it's a straw man argument to say Airbnb or short or short-term rentals are not the only impact on housing. Therefore, we shouldn't regulate them. I think we have to look at it from a nuanced point of view. We have to think about what we want our communities to look like and what we want housing to be used for. Hmm. Yeah, it might sound strange, but it's great to hear that uh, in part, you know, just to, to know that in so many of these themes and these topics that arise in the podcast, that there is this deep complexity and that we need to approach each with that in mind, right? And that it's not black and white, and that there's no easy solution to these things. And that the dilemmas of our time are actually inviting us towards an understanding of deeper complexity of the world. So, Murray, I'd like, if we could, to perhaps take a bit of a dive into some of the reports that Inside Airbnb has uh, produced so that some of our listeners could 
start to hear a little bit more of the work that you've put yourself to along with your colleagues, if that's all right. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say there's been three major reports that Inside IBM has done, in addition to releasing data and providing tools and also helping communities understand or, or organize around concerns about short-term rentals. The first report that we released, myself and a researcher from Toronto, Tom Slee, and so he's an independent researcher. He, he's written some books on the sharing economy, and he was collecting data before I started, so like about a year or so before. But we came together at the end of 2015, and we had decided we would collaborate on a report just looking at the data in New York City, and I think a number of other cities. And it was around this time that Airbnb had decided to release their own data, and This was like a sham data release. In New York City, they had said to some journalists, we're going to release some data. So prior to this, Airbnb had refused to give data. They had gone to council meetings, like for example, in the New York City council meetings, and then they had refused to give any data, even though there were all these questions about the impact of Airbnb on the city. And so they finally decided to release some data, and it was a... Like I said, it was a bit of a sham. They invited journalists to come into a office in New York City and look at the data on a laptop. And the only way that they could record the data would be via transcription so that they could take some notes. I don't even think that they were allowed to take photographs of the data. Mm-hmm. They weren't able to download the data. And a journalist from BuzzFeed had asked Airbnb if they could transcribe the data into their own spreadsheet. And so it wasn't a lot of data, but it was some summary data. And then at the same time, Airbnb had put out a report talking about how the number of commercial hosts in New York City had been decreasing. And so by commercial hosts, they defined it as hosts that had more than one entire home listing. And let me just say that even renting out an entire home in New York City was illegal at at that time under wow. the New York City's long-standing housing laws. And I think about that at that time there was thirty thousand entire home apartment Airbnbs listed, so potentially potentially illegal. But they had decided to focus on these commercial hosts that had more than one, and that they said that the number was decreasing. So when Tom Slee and I looked at the data, we had noticed just prior to the release of their report, they had expelled more than a thousand of these commercial listings from their platform, and it was obvious that the snapshot that they had taken for their report was after this purging, and they didn't mention the purging in the report. They had claimed that the trend for these commercial hosts were down, and so Tom and I released a report, and I believe it was in uh, around February 2016, which showed how Airbnb was misleading the public by their misuse of data and by temporarily purging these commercial hosts from their platform. And so this might not seem like a lot. But it really undermined New York City. The mayor of New York City at the time, Bill De Blasio, had come out and even referenced our report. He said, and I'm 
paraphrasing, but he said, if this report is true, then your Airbnb has a lot to answer for in terms of misleading the public. And so Airbnb at the time claimed it was a trend, that the purging was a trend because it was around the time of Halloween or something like that. And then later on, they tried to create a policy around their purging. They came up with their one host, one home policy mm. so that you can only rent out one entire home in its entirety. But if you rent it out two, they might restrict you. And then they even relied on this in court a few years later when they were trying to tell a federal judge that they were self-regulating. And then a few weeks later, they had to because it was quite easy for hosts to create multiple accounts. And there was evidence the city caught some hosts with more than 100 different listings, 100 different accounts across multiple apartment buildings, all illegal, at the same time that Airbnb had this one host, one home policy. Hmm. So, yeah, that was our first report. The second report that I did was a few years later, and this was in response to Airbnb's claim, again in New York City, that Airbnb was good for low-income neighborhoods and also, in a separate report, was good for black neighborhoods in New York City. And New York City is very racially segregated, mm. historically and even now. And so the question that I had out of those reports, they talked about the economic benefits that you could get from using Airbnb that you could make some extra money. And the obvious question is, who gets to make the extra money? In a low-income neighborhood, is it low-income residents that can make extra money? And conversely, in a black neighborhood, is it the black long-term residents that can make extra money? And so in the early days of my project, when I was doing some prototypes of my tool, I had created some maps of New York City. And instead of putting a dot on the map for each Airbnb listing I found, I put the Airbnb host's photograph because that was, it was easy just to, just to put that little photograph. And when I looked at the map for Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is a historically black neighborhood, there were all these white faces on the map. So I, when I released my tool in 2015, a few months later, I didn't include that map, but it had sat with me that in this black neighborhood in Brooklyn, there's a significant proportion of the hosts, or even a majority of the hosts, were actually white, new residents, gentrifiers, racial gentrifiers. And a few years later, as I was responding to these reports that Airbnb had come, had come out with, I decided to revise this idea about who's actually using Airbnb in these neighborhoods. And so I spoke to some other researchers that had done some studies on racial discrimination on platforms like Airbnb. So they looked at the behavior of hosts and guests, and they found that black hosts couldn't charge as much as white hosts. And they found that black guests were more likely to be have their booking not accepted. So there was racial discrimination mm. on both sides. Wow. And these researchers for some of their studies had used facial recognition on the photographs that the hosts or the guests had used to racially code either the hosts or the guests. And I think, it was, I think it was actually the hosts. And so we had compared notes and I had made a decision instead of producing these maps with the 
photographs of the host, I would actually go and racially code every single host in New York City. At the time, the software really only was able to racially code white, Asian, or black. Mm. And yeah, I do want to say that there are problems with using facial recognition and artificial intelligence and obviously doing some type of racial coding. And so I did take a lot of care. But what I found is that there was a 500% disparity between the black population in the community versus the black population of the Airbnb hosts that had listings and even greater disparities in some other neighborhoods up to like a thousand percent in black neighborhoods. So if the majority of the neighborhood was black, I found that the majority of the Airbnb host population was white. Wow. And so I, I published that study, I believe it was in 2018 and uh, Airbnb responded very typically. They denied it. They employed a whole bunch of their spokespeople, almost all of them are paid spokespeople, including black spokespeople, to really kind of question the, the report. They also thought that they could use it as an opportunity to recruit more black hosts. So instead of looking mm. at the issue of what is the impact on communities, how much housing is it taking away, and also there's this problem of these racial disparities, or if you look at it even from a non-racial point of view, if those were black neighborhoods that have historically been black, but the majority of the hosts are white, they're obviously from outside of the neighborhood. They're either gentrifiers or some type of property speculators that are mm. trying to take advantage of that neighborhood. So that was another study, which I called the faces of Airbnb in New York City. Mm. And you said that report came out in 2018, now five years later. What do you think, if anything, has changed since then? Well, I think that those communities have altered. They're further gentrified and further racially gentrified. Mm. So the disparity might not be as large because the underlying communities have changed. But I think the behavior of hosts, people trying to take advantage of this tool, would remain the same. That it's a economic tool that people can use to convert residential housing into the tourism market. And so that can sometimes intersect with gentrification. In the case of cities in the United States that are very racially segregated, for example, places like Chicago and Washington, D.C. and L.A., they could intersect with the racial gentrification as well, especially when you consider that in the U.S., racial demographics and also economic demographics coincide so that in lower income neighborhoods they're more likely to be black neighborhoods that are being gentrified and so even just taking race aside like like i said that these are economic tools i think that the behavior of hosts are the same and they may be different in different cities or in different countries depending right. on the makeup of the people that have access to property the needs of the residents for housing and also the tourism market. Right. So the function and consequence of short-term rentals or Airbnb, as an example, does not change depending on what skin color you have. Yeah, I think it's more about the economic tool that exists overlaying it on the community. 
and whether there's a racial aspect or not, right. it's just an observation that you can make that's mm. a further a concern in terms of new residents coming into a neighborhood, property speculators coming into a neighborhood, whereas the residents that live in, in the neighborhood are the ones that have are affected by the impacts, by the loss of housing, the rising cost of housing, and other changes as well, like the the change in the businesses in the neighborhood and other aspects. The one report I did get to at length is from 2020, and if I may, is entitled Platform Failures, How Short-Term Rental Platforms Like Airbnb Fail to Cooperate with Cities and the Need for Strong Regulations to Protect Housing. So in that report, you list some key findings based on the major cities studied in the report, and this seems to be more or less a European, if not global perspective. So I'd like, if I can, just to ring off a few of these statistics because they're quite, I want to say compelling, but I think the right word is something more like devastating. So in this report, Platform Failures, we read that in Amsterdam, for example, one in nine units were rented on Airbnb in some neighborhoods, one in nine. So that's 12, 13%. In Barcelona, rents increased by 7% and property prices 19% from the presence of Airbnb, even after government regulations for gentrification. In New York City, some 15,000 apartments were removed from housing, the housing market. In Paris, 15 to 25,000 apartments were removed from the housing market. And in Prague, some 15,000 apartments were lost to short-term rentals. And that's just to begin. And so I'm wondering, in this context, these cities that were mentioned, Amsterdam, Barcelona, New York City, Paris, and Prague, are all in the top 10 or 12 most visited, which is to say most touristed cities in the world. And I'm curious... From your perspective, the consequence that tourism alone has on on housing, maybe not just in the context of Airbnb, but in your own travels and what you've seen. I know that you have compañeros and colleagues in, in Barcelona and places like this. I'm sure you've met a lot of housing activists in these places. What have you seen in this regard? What do you consider to be the seen and unseen consequences? Well, I, I mainly focus on the impact on residential housing. And mm. if we, let's just look at tourism itself. Hotels impact communities as well. And so, but usually hotels take longer to build. There are usually or sometimes a process that needs to go ahead. For example, they might be only able to build in certain parts of the city. They might have to get permission to build. There might need to be environmental impacts. And they're much more heavily regulated. But they still do impact housing. And for example, in Barcelona, they're not only fighting short-term rentals, they're fighting the hotels in the neighborhood because they think that there's too many. And so I think that there's the conversion of the spaces that could be housing long-term residents or the workers of the city. There's the tourism, the tourists that could inundate a formerly quiet and peaceful or, or authentic neighborhood the businesses that might respond to the different needs of tourism versus the needs of locals. In some cases, in cities and also in the suburbs, schools are impacted as 
the population changes from longer-term residents with families, from tourists who obviously are not going to visit schools. In the US, for example, sometimes the funding for schools are based on how many students there are. And so if there's a reduction in population of students, then the schools receive less funding. There are other concerns as well. For example, in places with a lot of apartment buildings that are being rented out to short-term rentals, you'll have strangers entering into the building with access to key cards or keys. I'm sure you visited many cities where there are lockboxes attached to the door or around the doors for tourists to come and go as they please without really any security for the other residents that live there. I was recently in Athens in Greece where a resident had talked about the concerns that they had raised with the police, that their safety had been violated by some of these tourists that had been visiting. This drunk tourist had accidentally gone into the wrong apartment. There are stories like that. And I know that they probably are the tip of the iceberg in terms of the impacts, but there's all this activity underneath that you might never see, that people might never complain about, that are happening in our cities, towns, and villages all throughout the world. Yeah. You also list in the same report, there's 10 or 12 lines, the ways in which that these platforms, Airbnb being one of them, has basically failed cities. And I'm going to read a few of them. This is what your report offers. That these platforms are hiding identities of hosts and locations and locations of illegal listings, systematically failing to verify host identities and locations. They refuse to follow local laws like displaying registration numbers or removing illegal listings, threatening legal action over new regulations and filing abusive lawsuits, refusing to provide data for enforcement, failing to disclose activity for taxes collected, using taxes to avoid housing regulations, offering negotiation to avoid regulations. And in brackets, it's written, spoiler, most negotiations fail withdrawing negotiated agreements in retaliation, self-regulation tools, which are trivial to bypass, and then finally proposing ineffective regulations to delay and block better regulations. Now, I'm wondering, given these incredibly striking findings, what came to pass as a result of the release of this 2020 report? Well, I think that report was a result of years of working on the issue, really understanding how platforms like Airbnb behave in these different markets. And the genesis of the report were some conversations I had with some folks in Europe who were trying to get regulations, not just in one cities, but across multiple cities in the EU. EU has a common laws and European Commission. And so there was this there was this myth that these platforms are cooperating with cities. And in many cases these platforms are, but they may be cooperating with like the tourism department. Or they might be doing a deal over the Olympics or something like that. But based on my experience working with cities interviewing the administrators of regulations in the different cities, it was pretty obvious that 
the platforms were systematically applying all those methods that you kindly read out, but Airbnb just constantly was saying, we cooperate with cities without really providing any evidence. And so the report was a culmination of all the different research and observations from individual cities combined all into one. So it really became obvious this was the playbook that platforms like Airbnb were using. And so I hope it's being used by cities that are considering regulations, that are negotiating with some of these platforms, or by community members in cities to understand what they can ask for in terms of regulations. So it's hard to know what direct impact that report has, but I've met people that have read the report and are now organizing in their cities and are using some of the advice. For example, the report also recommends how to regulate short-term rentals using a registration system, platform accountability and data sharing. And I've had multiple conversations and worked with communities that are trying to do just that, regulating short-term rentals in their cities or towns. Amazing. That's really, really great to hear. I did want to ask you, Murray, about the housing crisis in general. You know, Airbnb is, is this kind of monolithic corporation that is pretty easy to point the finger at. But I'd also like to wonder a little bit with you about the undercurrents, what goes on in people's heads, what goes on interpersonally among people in regards to the ever-increasing stranglehold that the capitalist economy, modern capitalist economies have on our capacity to live and dwell. And so for me, this podcast is as much about the end of a touristic way of life that doesn't require travel to exist as much as it is about an extractive and destructive industry. So that's to say, how are we tourists or how do we act in touristic ways at home, right? In our own neighborhoods and in places where short-term rentals begin to outstrip long-term rentals, we see typically historic centers and downtowns turned into tourist ghettos. I can say firsthand that, you know, in the place that I live in Oaxaca, this is currently underway. And most people I talk to now have no friends or they don't know any local who lives in the historic center anymore. At the very least, rental availability and price fluctuations cause hypermobility, real or imagined, in the sense of an anxious knowing that, well, I'll probably have to move in two years if the rent increases. And so at the end of the day, pragmatic housing activists fight for regulation while others see the system as inherently caustic and fatal. What do you think about landlordism in general and the calls for housing as a human right? Yeah, I think you ended with the most important thing when you said this right to housing. How do you compare the right to housing with the right to travel? Especially in a world where in some countries there's a massively increasing middle class who have joined with that right or entitlement to travel? And how do you compare that to the right to housing, which we see in many countries there's an impending catastrophe that's going to involve 
a whole reshuffling of communities, of people not being able to afford to live and being forced to move. And I think about this myself as someone that has had the privilege of traveling extensively in the past. And now I travel a little bit differently. But I think we do need to rethink travel and why we travel and where we're traveling to and in what manner and means, what we're trying to get out of travel. Are we just trying to get a commoditized experience that's a fantasy? Or are we really trying to visit real communities? And also what level of tourism can our community support? And in many cases, and for some communities, that might mean a reduction, a significant reduction in tourism. I do think it's important not to assume that because that housing is going to be more tenuous, that we need to be more mobile in our lives and our travel. For example, there's a lot of talk now about digital nomads, which kind of implies anyone can work anywhere. But I think I believe that this is like a marketing device, if you want to be cynical about it, but at least only applies to a very small proportion of people that have those types of jobs, that type of flexibility, even those types of documentation to be able to do that, to be able to live anywhere, or if you're going to live for a whole year out of an Airbnb. So I think it's dangerous to think that our lives will be moving in that direction for most people. I do think we need to revisit types of housing. I, I really think a utopian and idealistic model for housing is one where housing is not a commodity, it's not property, it's not exchanged on a market. And so therefore, solutions like public housing, social housing, collective housing, cooperative housing should be what we are thinking about and not thinking about markets. Because for markets to optimize themselves, people have to make money and make more money. And that's not how you take care of the social needs for housing of our communities. For example, a few weeks ago, there were public hearings in New York City about some new regulations. Well, I was going to say dramatically reduce the ability to rent out an entire apartment. But I would say that to make it enforceable so that you aren't able to rent out an entire apartment in New York City. And there was a whole day of public hearings where hosts came on one after another and said how they have lost money by renting to tenants, that tenants don't treat their properties well, that they had to spend tens of thousands of dollars to evict tenants. Wow. And I think it's really important to think about if we have this landlord class, if we have to have a landlord class that are providing housing, we want that landlord class to be renting to not to tourists, but maybe we also need to support them in a way so that they're not responding by exiting from 
the housing market. So, for example, how do we support small landlords? How do we create a good balance between the tenant and the landlord relationship? I'm all for tenant rights, but I also think landlords just need to be better landlords and also understand that once you become a landlord of a residential property, you need to just be good at doing that job, not just making the most amount of money. So I think we do need to rethink housing. I also think short-term rentals are a really interesting dynamic from a circular point of view. If you think about that we live in our communities and if we're traveling to other communities that might be impacting those communities, other people might be coming to our communities and impacting them. In many cases, I think that should make you really think, well, how should I be traveling? Because it could come around and impact my community as well. I mean, the reality is that we usually live in different types of communities from where we visit. And so people just don't think about it. They don't think about what impact they're having on other communities. Or we've been trained to think about only the small impacts that, for example, the tourism industry wants us to think about. It might be about how many towels do you use, right? So that you think if you go to a hotel and you don't wash the towels every day, that's sustainable tourism. (laughs) But, you know, we need to think about everything. We need to think about all the needs of our communities. And I really think that we should be getting really good at having these conversations about researching it, about looking at all aspects of the needs of our community and the impacts on our community, and not really just segmented everything into tourism and housing and economic development. And then how do we plan for our communities and what do we want our communities to be? It really struck me the kind of levels or images or notions or worlds that opened up even just briefly for me when you mentioned the, the possibility of housing no longer being seen as a commodity and what that would allow people to focus on in the ways that would serve a willingness to honor life, honor neighbor, neighboring neighborhood. You know, I think that also we often use the term community much too flippantly, that it's somehow a community exists by virtue of enough people living in one place. But I'm reminded, you know, some of the traditional practices here in amongst certain indigenous groups anyways, here in Southern Mexico, of the Tequio, that once a month, all the able-bodied men and certainly others in the village have to gather together and go around to each house in the village and see what needs to be done and do it, right? As far as construction or whatever it might be, any little thing, this is done collectively. And those kinds of things that I'm sure existed for the vast majority of people who have landed on in, in North America, for example, or other parts of the Americas who ancestrally don't have a lived memory for this, but that it existed and that there is such beauty and, and ways of walking with community and not just talking about it. And this, this notion of, the host and the guest. When you, when you talk about short-term rentals and I was thinking, okay, well, maybe in the past there was a place like this for pilgrims, right? 
and what it means as a landlord. And I know a lot of people are probably going to like laugh at this or at least uh, roll their eyes, but as a landlord to be a host, I mean, that is on some level, your job is to be a host of a place that you are offering for someone in exchange as a transaction for their, for their labor, for their time, et cetera. And that as a renter, you are a guest in that place. And I think the obvious reality is that, that very few tenants and very few landlords actually proceed with that in mind, that there's no hospitality, which is where the guest and the host would adequately or properly meet in the middle. This this sensor skill of hospitality. And so maybe you have something to say about that. Well, I've enjoyed listening to some of your other guests. And I know you've talked about radical hospitality on some of your previous podcasts, which I recommend people listen to. I agree that the relationship between landlords and renters could be improved. But I, I, I think we need to enter into that with a landlord understanding that they're providing a social need. It's not an investment and it's not a customer. These are people's homes. But I think overall, people need to enter into life, I think, with more empathy and more openness so that we can really build those communities and work together and understand people's needs and wants if we're doing it under the auspices of capitalism. I think we can still do that. It's not as ideal. I think that with short-term rentals, the guest and host nomenclature is a little bit erroneous because in many cases, the host is not present. It's not actually hosting you in the way that, in the majority of cases, I would say that probably, you know, maybe 20 or 30% of the time there's a host, an actual host. And it might also depend on how you travel. You might like that type of travel, but other travelers, and I know this from anecdotal stories, that people don't want to meet anyone when they travel. Mm. They want to have a completely isolated experience in many senses of the word. Right. And so I think in terms of looking at solutions, we do need to think more about life and our communities and building communities and how that might impact when we're outside of our own community and visiting other communities, whether for pleasure or for work or for visiting family or friends. In terms of dialogue with some of these other actors like these platforms like Airbnb. I've had a lot of experience in dealing with them, usually on the other end of a journalist, so that a journalist might be relaying the quotes that they have given to them. Sometimes they're attacking my work, that they'll say that I work for the hotel industry, that I'm a shill for the hotel industry, that I make millions of dollars from my data. I've had questions about my qualifications in terms of my academic qualifications from journalists. I have had some meetings with Airbnb and they were civil, but they were not productive and they weren't trying to find solutions. I think they were trying to tell me why their idea of self-regulation was a good idea. And I've been at the side of them trying to disrupt my research 
For example, I mentioned mm. the faces of Airbnb research that talked about racial disparities in New York City. They got a hold of a leaked copy of that report and tried to disrupt the release of that report. And wow. so I, I got a call from a journalist a week before I was about to release it asking for comment about my report, which I hadn't even given to him. Mm. And so they've attacked researchers. Like, for example, I mentioned the researchers that were studying racial discrimination. They basically just did the research and the findings. So I think that many of these corporations, they greenwash their work. At some point in time prior to the pandemic, Airbnb had a $100 million budget for communications and lobbying. They have a team of lawyers that they deploy to fight cities. So I'm not really hopeful I think that there are opportunities to have a nuanced conversation, but not from a now a public company. And they have a duty to maximize their revenue and continue to grow. At one point, they had a capitalization of 100 billion US dollars. Mm. And so I don't see how they could agree to curtail their activity or agree to any type of restrictions, unless they're required to do so by law. Hmm. And so that really puts the onus on communities to um, respond to that challenge by creating laws and regulations. I wanted to ask you in that regard, from a lay perspective, it seems that one of the consequences of gentrification and this constant displacement of people through rent increases and evictions is the inability to organize, to organize communally and to organize against such things. People can't organize as a community if there's no community, which is to say if there's no sense or skill of home, of neighboring, of time in in a place and with other people, that there's no resistance. Airbnb and short-term rentals appear in this context to be inherently anti-community or decommunalizing I'm curious what you've seen in this in this regard in your research and correspondence for the last decade. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that that is one of the challenges of housing organizing and housing activism. And there's so many more people that call themselves housing activists that fight this fight every day that do a lot more than me, in my opinion. And their their challenge is to connect to people meet them where they are. But like you said, if you get displaced, you usually are forced to move somewhere else. There's no longer a record of someone being there or a testimony from someone being there. And so that's very challenging. But I think you have to have hope as an activist and as an organizer that those challenges can be overcome, that there are still people that are being impacted. There are still people that care and can do something about it. And that in most cases, we can either build solutions ourselves, we can call on our democracies or our legal systems to create systems to help. Yeah, so I, I am hopeful. I have seen, for example, at one point in time, Airbnb was doing a lot of community organizing. They were holding meetings. They employed organizers in different communities. Wow. And this was both in New York City, in the US. I have a lot of contact with 
residents in Venice, Italy. And I know that Airbnb was looking for a community organizer to organize their hosts. In some aspects, they have spoken about potentially having town hall meetings so that there could be conversations with the community, like hosting those town hall meetings. Although I've never really seen those types of meetings in practice unless they are organized by the community members or sometimes the cities themselves. So one example that I thought was really well run, the city of Paris selected community members. I'm not sure if you had to apply or they're randomly selected. And so they had a cohort of people from the community and they took them through a whole series of information sessions with them, talking to experts on housing, on tourism. I participated in and, and spoke about the data. And they wanted this panel of community members to understand all of the arguments for and against short-term rentals and provide some type of advice on what policies the city should be following. And I think that's a really good model, especially given that sometimes the regulatory process in different cities seems to me very dependent on either power and disproportionate power, or sometimes it seems quite random to me. This type of understanding the needs of the community and figuring out how to respond to it could be a lot more systematic based on community meetings and st studying the issue and coming up with a list of possible options and discussing the options. Frequently, it's up to one side or the other to throw something against the wall and it might just get voted on by our representative legislators if we live in a democracy. And I find that very inefficient given that there are lots of models of research and study and planning either coming up with programs policies projects pilots or regulations and so yeah i think we could improve in all of our communities how we make decisions for our communities in many cases these are local impacts and local issues but some of our laws or some of our processes are outside of our communities. Mm. They're regional, they're with the state, national. I mentioned even in Europe, they're sometimes, for example, with the EU. And we frequently don't have access to those spaces where even mm. the conversations are taking place. Sometimes there would be pseudo public comments, but our communities don't really have power. So I think that there's an opportunity for both communities to be doing more organizing in those larger spaces, mm. but also for those larger spaces to be getting input from those communities and doing more work. And I do think that there is a thing f to be said about having national laws or regulations that affect a larger group of people, especially when it comes to human rights, like housing. But I think given that our communities seem to often have different needs or different challenges. Sometimes we need to empower our local communities to come up with their own solutions. 
And mm. I think if we look at that against the backdrop of these global multinational companies like Airbnb, who would prefer either no laws or only a few laws that they have to either navigate or compete with, that there's a disparity between what the needs of the community are versus the needs of these multinational corporations or, or capitalism itself. Seems like this constant arrow towards regenerating the local as a source of power, as a, as a source of community. But I wanted to ask you in regards to your response to this question. So you've developed this side project, if I can call it that, called Resist Airbnb. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so for a long time, as I've worked on this project called Inside Airbnb, which you rightly call a project, I've had lots of contact with different communities that are organizing. And in many cases, they're organizing by themselves. And so I frequently became hub or a node in a network where I could connect people together, either connecting people with data or connecting communities to other communities that are organizing. In the case of cities that are, uh, that are being challenged by these issues, connecting them to other cities, other regulators that have experience. And so I, I become a resource of connecting people. As we think of the impacts of short-term rentals and Airbnb, Airbnb is a multinational company. And they've got money that they can spread around the world. They can create a policy of responding to the press and of organizing internally because that's the nature of their organization. But to do that or to compete with that from a community point of view, from an activist point of view, it's a lot more challenging. And so I've been looking for ways to help in more ways than just providing data or for tools by connecting people. And so I've been experimenting with different ways of creating networks of forums where we can meet that something, and this has already been happening in other parts of the world. For example, in Southeast Europe, there's a network of communities in cities and researchers finding tourism. It's the set network. In Texas and in the United States, there's a group that have been helping each other in the Texas Neighborhood Coalition. So they've been helping each other in Fort Worth and Dallas and Arlington as they each fight for their communities. And so I'm experimenting with different ways of connecting folks. And Resist Airbnb may end up being one of them. But I'm also thinking about the work that I do in addition to Inside Airbnb. I've been thinking about sustainability a lot because I'm at the center of the project. And I believe that there's a need for it to continue for both the data that we've collected over the last eight years to continue to be available, to make more data available, and to keep on collecting data into the future. But I'm not one for just building an institution where it doesn't exist. So I'm also looking at other needs, other housing needs, uh, and what other housing data is needed. And so I've been working with some advisors to 
both sustain the project and also what other things can we work on related to housing? Because in many cases, we're all fighting the same battle. We all mm. need the same tools. Sometimes the same types of data is involved. And that's something that I'm working on in addition to the organizing around short-term rentals. It sounds super, super exciting. I look forward to hearing more about it. Before we finish, how might our listeners find out more about Inside Airbnb, access the data and, and interactive maps on your website, and how might they support the project and resist Airbnb? You know, I've reminded finally of a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine here in Oaxaca, who is a big fan of the podcast. She's a local Spanish-speaking Oaxacan, very at odds with what's happened to her city over the last 20 or 30 years. In passing, she mentioned to me, she said, oh, I have a small piece of land on the coast. She said, bought it during the pandemic, which makes her one of many alongside many people from Mexico City and Americans all looking to escape and find either their final home or investment. And I asked her, well, what are you going to do with it? And she kind of laughed and she said, oh, I don't know, Airbnb or something, right? But I guess the question is for people like her who are deeply troubled by what they see in their place and see little recourse to joining the party as opposed to the fight. Well, I think that I, I, I heard two questions. There's, there's one about how do we kind of navigate this world that we live in where sometimes we can't live idealistically or we have to live pragmatically and we have to figure it out. And sometimes that's a hustle. Sometimes we might not even want to think about whether we're doing the right thing or whether it might not even be easy to do anything else. So I do think we need to forgive people for sometimes just taking the easiest way out or the way that's going to support them and their families and provide some type of safety. But I think we need to make sure that where there are opportunities or where there can be conversations to do more, to do better, to have better options, I think we need to take them. I think we need to be critical when people are not thinking about that and they're only thinking about, for example, making money and making an excess of money. So I think we should be encouraging each other to live within our means, to focus on our needs and not just our wants, to question our wants. And some of this advice is probably beyond what I should be giving, just in terms of, I don't know if I'm qualified to be giving that type of advice. But that's how I think about it myself. For example, there are different models of housing. In most communities, you can always find someone to rent a property that's not a tourist. I can understand, especially in many countries, that the disparity between the tourist dollar and the local dollar can be vast, especially if, if we consider that, that tourism is a global industry and that even if currencies fluctuate, there's always going to be some tourism with more money than our local communities, sometimes by factors of tens or hundreds. And so I think you can't really underestimate that. But I think communities can themselves look at that opportunity and think about 
well, what do we want to become? We want to take advantage of tourism, but this is going to be the cost if we either A, just just depend on tourism, how do we invest in ourselves and other industries or other pursuits? Because I think it's dangerous just to depend on tourism because you will become a Disneyland and people will get priced out and people will disappear because we know that's what happens. In terms of offering advice just to other community members that might be struggling with short-term rentals in their community, you can go to my website, Inside Airbnb, and that's got most of the links to either support the project, to collaborate with the project, to request data, to look at the data that's available. I would encourage you, if you're an activist or a community member, to reach out to me because I would prioritize those interactions and I'd potentially try and work with those communities or work with you. I respond the most to communities that have already started to organize themselves. So it's not just an individual. So that there's a few people that are organizing and they're thinking about, well, what could they do? But I'm also planning on releasing much more data, entire countries, to both understand the issue from a more holistic or a global point of view or a national point of view. But for example, in the case of Mexico, that you'd be able to go to my website soon, probably not in the next few weeks, but maybe later this year and get the data for your city in Mexico. And if I have communities approaching me, then I would prioritize those communities or those areas or those countries. And I can speak Spanish, so if those community members can't speak English, they can still reach out to me. Well, there's a lot of people here I can put you in touch with and I'd absolutely love to. Well, thank you so much, Murray, for joining us today. On behalf of our listeners, it's been a great honor. And thank you for your generosity today and helping us to speak about this issue. I'll make sure that our guests have all the details regarding Inside Airbnb and Resist Airbnb and, and your own work on the End of Tourism website when the episode launches. Do you have any final words? for our listeners today. Well, I do want to thank you, Chris, for having these conversations and for hosting these conversations. I'm really looking forward to seeing where they lead to and looking forward to seeing the work that I know you're going to bless us with. I do challenge people just to think a little bit more about tourism and think about their needs. I do think you should boycott Airbnb if you're going to a community where you think it could be impacting their community or at least think twice or have some conversations while you're there that would inform you or lead you to either know more or do something differently. Beautiful. Maybe so. May we heed your call. Thank you, Murray. Great. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening, everyone. For more, you can check out the homework section under each episode on our website at theendoftourism.com. We'd also like to offer a deep bow of gratitude for our patrons who ensure that the project keeps growing and so that all of you can listen without a paywall. In this way, we participate in the gift economy and invite you to do the same via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash theendoftourism. Likewise, you can follow us on social media via the handle The End of Tourism. Until next time, 
farewell, friends. <laughs>